do you want to know why I've had a surprisingly relaxing day? Okay, it might not have been the question on all of your lips, but I'll tell you why anyway, which is that when I woke up this morning, I knew I was going to have to do a show on something I didn't know very much about, which was European football tournaments. Now, normally when I wake up and the big story of the day is something that's not my area of expertise, I'm sort of thinking, who can I get on who can furnish this show with the expertise that it needs so my audience can learn something? Then I realized it's Monday. The person I would most like to discuss the future of European football with was already booked to be on my show. It's Ash Sarkar, not only Navarra's royal correspondent, also now our football correspondent. Ash, it's such a pleasure. I mean, good news. I finally have an excuse to talk about football, an awful lot in Tisky Sour. Bad news, it's because corporate moneyed interests have conspired to kill the sport, which I love so much. Yeah, it's true. And before any of you think, oh, I don't care about football, this isn't an important story. One, it's a really important story. And two, even if you don't know much about football, we're going to make it all very, very basic, which is probably where my ignorance is actually quite helpful um, on, on this particular theme. So do make sure you stay tuned. If you understand what's going on, we're going to give you the insight you need. If you don't, we're going to explain how it all works, what this row is about and why it matters. And we also have couple more stories for you this evening. One of them is the Welsh elections, and we'll be and we'll be analysing the various electoral contests which are taking place on the seventh of May. Today we're going for Wales, and we're going to finish the show with. Uh, is it was it awkward? Did he deal with it well? Anyway, it was an altercation between Keir Starmer and a pub landlord about lockdowns. Um, fairly entertaining, I think. Straight to our first story. You can see the research I've done in my intro now. Everything I'm telling you tonight, I learned quite recently. The Champions League is currently the top competition in European football. I knew that, actually. Its viewing figures are enormous. It rakes in tons of money for the teams taking part, and it raises the stakes of domestic games, as qualification for the competition relies on achieving certain spots in the National League. So in England's case, it's the top four in the Premier League that qualify. That makes the end of the season very exciting because you want to know who gets in the top four. However... We've learned today the billionaire owners of England's six richest teams no longer like the system. And in particular, they don't like the element of jeopardy, which makes football so exciting. They don't like the fact that they're not guaranteed a spot in the Champions League every year because it means they won't necessarily be able to rake in that cash every year. They also want to control the revenue more than they currently do, and they want to waste less time this is in their words, or at least their logic. They don't want to waste time playing fixtures against smaller clubs. They just want the big teams of Europe playing each other over and over again. This is, of course, the European Super League. It is made up of the big six, the so-called big six of English football, even though they're definitely not the top six in the Premier League, and six of their competitors on the continent. They in the middle of the night last night, about midnight, always odd if you're launching what's supposed to be a big successful project to slip it out at that particular time. Um, they have announced the launch of the European Super League. Let's go through the 12 clubs who have signed up to the project so far. So from England, they are Manchester United, Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City and Liverpool. From Spain, it's Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Barcelona. And from Italy, Inter Milan, AC Milan 
and Juventus. Now, the clubs involved were also expecting three more people to join. There were supposed to be 15 founding members for the European Super League, but Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund and Paris Saint-Germain have all indicated they're opposed to the plans. They could change. It could be a case that they think this is where the wind is blowing and they have to join. Well, we're yet to see. We understand um, that they've said there will be five extra spots in that Super League, which will be allocated based on how people perform in their domestic league. So there'll be 15 permanent members of the Super League and then five, I suppose, guest members every year based on who's done well in the various leagues around Europe. That's the basics. Ash, um, these plans have football fans up in arms. We feel It feels like we're close to a revolution in this country today. Tell me why. Okay, so the reason why people are so angry, there are long, medium and short term reasons. One of the long term reasons is because we have seen a shift in this country towards, you know, corporate interest controlling football clubs. So you had the Glazer takeover of Manchester United, which made a lot of people very unhappy. Same with the ownership of Stan Kroenker of uh, Arsenal. And you've also got this sense, particularly with Tottenham Hotspur, that the uh, management by the ENIC Group, which is an English investment uh, corporation, has not had the interest of the team at heart. So you have had the sense amongst the fans, pretty um, uh, religious fans, people who aren't casual observers of the sport, that financial interests have taken the sport away from its roots. It's no longer about the fans. It's no longer about... Uh, the community. It's about maximizing profit, even at the expense of building a good team, which can win things and, you know, bring home the glory. So that's one of the long term trends. One of the more medium term trends is, of course, um, a sense that football's been trending in an unfair direction, and that's been having an impact on the results. So it's not going to come as a surprise to anybody that what we've got in terms of the Premier League and then the Champions League isn't exactly a meritocracy. You don't tend to have big upsets in the Champions League anymore. Why? Because the clubs with the most money, many of whom are sort of, you know, fronts for petrodollar regimes, tend to do the best. It's because they've got better resources. It's because they can, you know, really build a team geared towards winning these competitions. And also, depending on who you believe, They've been able to make use of the fact that financial fair play regulations aren't enforced as tightly as they ought to be. And there are also other rumours of more underhand forms of corruption. UEFA, um, the European Football Association, has been mired in corruption scandals for very many years. So there's a kind of medium term trend of, of dissatisfaction. And then in the short term, particularly with this, you've got a sense of betrayal. You've got a sense of betrayal because football clubs, even the really big ones, have been, you know, furloughing their staff. Some have been imposing redundancies. There was a story uh, last year about Gunnosaurus, the Arsenal mascot, being laid off and then Mesut Ozil stepped in to guarantee his wages. So there was a sense that with the coronavirus pandemic that the fans were being told, oh, we're in these really difficult circumstances uh, because of the pandemic, everyone's got to pull together. We're all in this together. It's a really difficult time. And here you have a move which is based on nothing than 
nothing other than greed. And the results of that aren't necessarily or aren't at all going to produce a better quality of sport for the fans to enjoy. What it does is maximize the profit generating ability of these big clubs for their corporate investors. So as you said, it takes away the element of jeopardy. So while there is, of course, huge inequalities in how the Premier League and how the Champions League functions, and we can also talk about how the Premier League sort of set the model for this breakaway in a minute, um, there is still at its heart an idea of what's called, you know, a, a pyramid of competition. So your little team, if they play really well, they can get promoted, they can make it to the top four of the Premier League, and then suddenly they make it onto the European stage. So your little team, you know, Sporting Navarra or Tiski FC can make it onto the European stage with the big boys of Real Madrid, Barcelona. And there have been, even with the Champions League being what it is, there have been some really memorable special nights of football. This moves away from that model towards something which is more like a franchise, more like something that you see in America, where you don't have the possibility of these big teams missing out on the most lucrative uh, tournaments that they're able to play in. So instead, you've got teams which, by virtue of their financial clout and the prestige, uh, have a permanent place. It's almost like the Football Security Council, except instead of nukes, they've got corporate backers. Um, that they're always going to be there. And it makes it much harder for your little clubs to make it in there and to produce those really wonderful uh, moments that fans of football absolutely adore. The other thing that it does is that it represents another step in the game getting further away from the fans in terms of accountability, in terms of control, in terms of what fans want to see. Because nobody likes the feeling of their club being relegated. It's a terrible feeling to have. But this idea of the peril that if your club doesn't make a Champions League placement, if it is one of the big six clubs, it's one of the things which keeps football exciting. And it's one of the things that makes it meaningful when, for instance, you had Leicester uh, win the Premier League and make it into the Champions League. It felt like a really special thing. Now, with all of that gone, what do you have? What you have is essentially the football equivalent of a franchise movie which has run out of ideas so it just keeps making all of its biggest names and like biggest monsters fight each other so instead of having kind of new and original movies you're like i know what if we made like wonder woman fight spider-man and then in the next movie spider-man can fight batman just again and again and again so it ends up with a very repetitive kind of football which um, the kind of architects of the European Super League will ho hope to do will draw in a, a global audience of more casual football viewers who only ever want to see the big matches. But it represents a betrayal of the fans at quite a fundamental level, as well as presenting huge problems for the players themselves and the managers. Mm, a really good summary. And I suppose just to emphasize for people who are a bit new to this, the real key issue here, as Ash said, is the difference between a pyramid structure and a franchise. What we've had in, in Europe, and we have for nearly all sports, actually, is you have a national association which governs the Football League, then a European association which governs European football. And it's it's not managed necessarily by the clubs themselves. And you can go from a lower league, get promoted into a higher league, get promoted again to a higher league. And there is I mean, you know, it's, it's idealistic to, to 
to talk about it like this because as Ash said, money comes into it a lot, but there's almost a meritocracy. If you perform well in the second division, you can go up to the first division. The American model, which is how nearly all sports are governed in the United States, is the complete opposite. You have a group of clubs who say, we're going to make a team. No one can be relegated from it. No one could be promoted from it. And it's called a franchise model because if they decide to expand the league, so the NBA, for example, there won't be a competition to, to get into that league. So it won't be by merit or by winning games that you get into that league. It will be by buying the franchise. So a, a big corporate will come along and say, we will buy um, the franchise for a team in Boston, for example, if that's where there was a, a gap in the market. So you buy your way into the league instead of qualifying for it, which is why there's a, a big political um, element to, to all of this, to this argument. Now, obviously, that comparison between the franchise model governed purely by the teams and then a pyramid model governed by the, the governing associations and the FA or, or whoever we're talking about, that is the framework which is meaning or which has meant that all of these governing bodies are up in arms about this plan. Um, and they're talking some quite tough words to try and stop it happening. So we're going to get up a statement from UEFA. So that's the, the governing body for European football. So they released a statement. This was yesterday. So on Sunday, UEFA, the English FA, the RFEF, which is the Spanish version of the FA, and the FIGC, which is the governing body of Italian football, the Premier League, La Liga, Liga, Serie A, but also FIFA and all our member associations will remain united in our efforts to stop this cynical project, a project that is founded on the self-interest of a few clubs at a time when society needs solidarity more than ever. We will consider all measures available to us at all levels, both judicial and sporting, in order to prevent this happening. Football is based on open competitions and sporting merit. It cannot be any other way. As previously announced by FIFA and the six confederations, the clubs concerned will be banned from playing in any other competition at domestic level, European or world level, and their players could be denied the opportunity to represent their national teams. Um, they also thanked the, the German and French clubs for not taking part. We'll probably discuss the reasons later um, why that's the case. Surprise, surprise, it's all down to ownership. What I want to know from you, though, Ash, is how this is going to play out, because basically the situation we have now is a massive game of chicken. We have to do some game theory, because essentially what the, the Super League clubs want to do is they want to say, look, we'll still compete in the Premier League, we'll still compete in the domestic leagues, but instead of the Champions League, we'll have our Super League. The Premier League... They don't want this to happen because it, you know, it, it makes their league less significant because it's not by getting into the top four in the Premier League that you get into Europe. Their, their league will become a bit more redundant. They don't want this to happen. They're saying, well, you can't have both. If you join the Super League, we're kicking you out of the Premier League. The reason it's a game of chicken is because the Super League clubs, Arsenal, Man U, whatever, they're going to say to the Premier League, really? You're going to kick out your six most successful clubs? your six richest clubs who bring in so much of the revenue, you're going to kick us out. We don't believe it. And the FA are going to say, no, we're serious about this. You really want to leave the Premier League to join this Super League? There's going to be a revolution among your fans if you allow yourselves to be kicked out of the Premier League. So there's this, this huge game of chicken. And I have to say, I've got no idea who's going to win. Um, who do you think will fold first? Will it be the Super League clubs or will it be the FA and UEFA? Well, you know what? This is an old story. And this is why this story has salience, which is much bigger than simply the world of football. Who is going to win? Is it going to be uh, national and transnational organizations or is it going to be international 
finance. That's the two sets of interests which are ranged against each other at the moment. For what it's worth, I can't remember a time in football, and there have been breakaway leagues before, most notably <coughs> the Premier League, where there has been outcry not only from uh, you know, the FA, UEFA, FIFA, and from national governments. This is something which has been condemned by Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron. I can't remember a time where that has happened before. And also you've got while on the one hand, fans are historically disempower disempowered in terms of ownership and representation uh, at the level of, of club uh, bureaucracy and decision making, you do have an amplification of fans' voices through social media in a way that you didn't really have before. So I think that that's something which kind of, you know, doesn't make it clear necessarily uh, that the clout of JP Morgan's financial backing, which really is significant, is, is going to win the day. When it comes to the levers at the disposal of the FA, the Premier League and UEFA, well, one of the things they can do is immediately kick out Man City, Chelsea, Real Madrid from the Champions League. Another thing that the Premier League could choose to do would be to relegate or dock points from the big six clubs which announced the breakaway, as well as refusing to give them the permission uh, to play in this league at all. The FA has to give permission uh, for the big six English clubs to be able to compete in a European Super League in the first place. So that would present a very difficult choice for these clubs, which is, well, do you then give up? Um, your chance to play in in the domestic league, which is still at this point in a small part due to the outsized clout of these clubs, the most profitable domestic league in the world. And then you've got an element which is, well, what do the players want and what does management want? Uh, you have figures like Jurgen Klopp, who as recently as 2019, he's the manager of Liverpool for uh just to explain, uh, Jurgen Klopp, who as recently as 2019 spoke out against the creation of the European Super League. Uh, Jose Mourinho, who was sacked today probably for reasons not 100% related to the Super League, also in the past has expressed scepticism towards the idea. Um, Wenger, the former manager of Arsenal as well, spoke out against such an idea before, saying that it would be unfair and unsportsmanlike. So you do have, I think, a issue within the teams themselves about can they force this through? Because another thing that FIFA have said is that, well, OK, well, if you're players who want to, you know, play for this European Super League, you're not then going to be able to play for your national side when it comes to the World Cup. Now, if you're a player like Harry Kane, who is, uh, you know, the Tottenham captain, as much as it pains me to say it, it's highly unlikely that he is going to know touch of silverware, um, certainly not um, a Champions League trophy uh, with Tottenham. Um, winning the Premier League, well, we keep on fucking that up. Again, unlikely. We've got the, um, we've got the cup final, uh, the Carabao Cup this Sunday, and our manager got sacked six days before. So who knows how that's going to go? Um, if you're Harry Kane and you're the England captain as well as the Tottenham captain, and there are all sorts of lucrative sponsorship deals that come with that, as well as the prestige of the position, are you going to willingly give up and say, I'm completely fine without playing uh, for my national side anymore? Again, these are all questions which are, are up in the air. And these are the levers which are available to these institutions, which very much uh, represent the old and indeed flawed guard of football 
who are up against these new billionaire-backed interests. Let's go to the political responses. Um, so UEFA, all the football leagues, they'll be weighing up how much power, how much influence they have, how much leverage they have against plans for the Super League. They probably will have got um, some solace or some confidence from the, the level of unity on the side of politicians. Um, the European Commission Vice President today, Margarita Sheenas, today said... The proposed Super League threatens continental values. And Boris Johnson this morning said he'll do whatever he can to make sure the Super League doesn't go ahead in the way it's currently being proposed. We're going to look at everything that uh, we can do uh, with the, the football authorities to, to make sure that uh, this doesn't go ahead in the way that it's uh, currently being proposed. I don't think that it is good news for, for fans. I don't think it's good news for uh, for football in this country. And look, don't, don't forget, these, these clubs are not just great global brands. Of course, they're great uh, global brands. They're also uh, clubs that have originated historically uh, from their towns, from their cities, from their local communities. They should have a link uh, with those fans and, uh, and, and with the fan base in those, uh, in those communities. So it is very, very important uh, that that continues uh, to be the case. Uh, I don't like the look of these, uh, these proposals and we'll be consulting about what we do. The Housing Minister, Christopher Pincher, earlier told Sky News the Super League plans were by the elite, for the elite, and of the elite. Now, that's a phrase very reminiscent of Labour's former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who himself made an appearance today to speak out against the plans. Well, they've made strong statements, but they need to follow that up. They need to follow that up with the policies, I believe, that we put forward, which is about democratic participation in this, where the fans get a real voice, they get to say what's going on, they get to fix on ticket prices as well. The German model is basically quite a good one. It's very interesting that the German clubs have all said they want nothing to do with this. Mm. And the, of the cl clubs so far named, there seems to be a huge imbalance with six English clubs in um, of, uh, of a league that's going to be of 12. Well, of course I love them. English football, we'll do, but it's not the only show in town. There's lots of other football all across Europe. Surely they need some fair participation. This Super League idea is a real no-no. It's based on greed. It's based on damaging football for the want of making a great deal of money out of it and turning it into a global brand. Right. And you mentioned the manifesto, the Labour manifesto in 2019, where there were proposals, as you say, yep. to look at the governance and regulation. Now, Keir Starmer has repeatedly said the party's under new management, but presumably you'd like him to keep that bit of the manifesto. Well, that part of the manifesto, as indeed many other parts, was very, very popular. And I would have thought it would be good sense to not just keep that policy, but to expand it. And now to consult with the entire football community on how this more democratic model will actually work. But above all, it is about redistributing the wealth of football into the totality of the game. Otherwise, where are the stars of tomorrow if we yeah. don't fund the grassroots football properly today? One of those moments where Corbyn's ideas are really coming into their own, sadly, after he's um, left the scene as Labour leader. The German model, which he mentioned there, very much worth pausing on. Um, in Germany, no club can be owned by corporations. There is 51% of the shares of any club reserved for fans. So you can have a billionaire who invests in the club, but they can only buy up to 49% of the shares. It will always be the fans in control, which is as Corbyn points out, why no German, German clubs have bought into this model, which fans everywhere 
hate. Um, as for what the Labour front bench are calling for, I think they've called for a fan-led review. They always call for reviews. I would say they should just come out now and call for the German model. I don't see um, any reason not to. Finally, um, in case you thought you needed an opinion from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, they have also um, tweeted about this. Now, more than ever, we must protect the entire football community from the top level to the grassroots and the values of competition and fairness at its core. I share the concerns of fans about the proposed Super League and the damage it risks causing to the game we love. W, um, which I assume is from William. Let's quickly run through those owners, because obviously the big issue here is money. It's that in this country, unlike in Germany, it's not the fans who have control over their clubs. It is the billionaires who bought them. And it is worth, I think, mentioning who these people are, because to me, it just seems completely bizarre. Well, not bizarre, because I know how it happened, but completely outrageous that we let these people come and control you know, Britain's national game, the game that we're most passionate and proud about. And and we've let it be bought out by some fairly disreputable people. Um, let's go through them one by one. So Arsenal are owned, as I said earlier, by Stan Kroenke. He is a US billionaire. He owns loads of American sports teams. He's also married to the daughter of the founder of Walmart. Um, and he bought majority shares in Arsenal in 2011. Liverpool, um, they've been owned since 2010 by American banker John W. Henry. Now, John W. Henry also owns the Boston Red Sox. They're a baseball team, the Boston Globe, which is a newspaper, and co-owner of Rouge Fenway Racing, which is a team in the American version of Formula One. Now, there are lots of, three of the six actually are owned by Americans, and that's relevant because they're basically trying to export the franchise model into our system. They think we love the franchise model. It gives us really secure, stable profits, which we can always rely on. What the hell are they doing with relegation and promotion? It doesn't make any sense. But really, there is a driver coming from Americans, American money and the American model trying to be introduced here. Let's go through some more. Manchester City are owned by Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed Al Nayan, who is an oil billionaire and a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family. He's owned the club since 2008, and he also owns a yacht worth half a billion dollars. So these are the people who just weren't making enough money from these teams, so they had to sell out the fans so they could make more. He's already got a yacht worth half a billion dollars. Why does he need this? Chelsea, you probably know, is, is owned by Russian billionaire Roman, Roman Abramovich. Um, he bought the club in 2003, and he made most of his money in the fire sale of Russian assets after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so he's also already stolen the wealth of one nation, and now he's selling out the the wealth of another. Um, Manchester United have been owned by the American billionaire Michael Glazer and his family since 2003. The Glazers bought the club with loans secured against the club's assets. So he's been hated forever because basically his only gift to the club was shed loads of debt, borrowed money to buy the club, and then the club had to pay back those debts. Finally, Tottenham, as Ash has mentioned, they're owned by a Bahamas-based investment fund called Enoch Group. Um, that's owned by Joe Lewis, who is pictured on the left. Daniel Levy on the right of this image is the club's chairman. He also owns shares in Enoch. Why do all of these billionaires want this model? As we've already implied, it's money. But let's go into a little bit more detail about why they think they'll make more from this and the financial arrangements which are underlying the Super League, the Financial Times had some good details on this. So the, the, the first thing you need to know is that this is in part being organized behind the scenes by the US investment bank, JP Morgan, or at least in partnership with JP Morgan. They've put up a 3.25 billion euro grant upfront. The clubs that join will get that as soon as this is launched. It will work out as a welcome bonus of 200 to 300 million euros per 
club. Um, of course, JP Morgan aren't doing this, you know, for, from the goodness of their hearts. They're going to get money back from future TV rights. They're expecting a two to three percent return per year on the investments. It's a coalition of American billionaires and American big banks. Um, according to the FT, also the revenue will be huge. So in the long run, they think they're going to get more money from TV rights than they did in the Champions League. So the FT reports. The Super League's organisers have held early discussions with broadcasters about the competition according to people familiar with the talks, seeking to secure deals with the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Disney and Comcast-owned Sky that would raise annual revenues worth €4 billion Euros a year, which is roughly double the amount earned by the Champions League, which is the continent's top annual club competition. Um, so, as you can see there, they've got money from investment bankers. They think they can... Uh, make twice as much money as the Champions League makes in TV rights. And very importantly, um, actually, uh, the, the revenue will be controlled not by an external agency, which in the case of the Champions League is UEFA, but by the 15 clubs who control the franchise. So any money that goes into or which is which is which comes through from the TV rights will be controlled by the clubs and only by the clubs. The backlash to the plans for a breakaway Super League has been enormous and involved many of the most prominent people in British football. It's also taken quite an overtly political form. This was Gary Neville railing against the plans on Sky Sports on Sunday. Well, the reaction to it is that it's been damned and rightly so. Um, I mean, I'm a Manchester United fan and have been for 40 years of my life, but I'm disgusted, absolutely disgusted. I'm disgusted with Manchester United and Liverpool most. I mean, Liverpool, they pretend you know, you'll never walk alone, the people's club, the fans club. Manchester United, 100 years, born out of workers around here. And they're breaking away into a league without competition that they can't be relegated from. It's an absolute disgrace. And honestly, we have to wrestle back the power in this country from the clubs at the top of this league, and that includes my club. And I've been calling for 12 months as part of another group for an independent regulator to bring checks and balances in place to stop this happening. It's pure greed. They're imposters. They're imposters. They're nothing to do. The owners of this club, the owners of Liverpool, the owners of Chelsea, the owners of Manchester City, they're nothing to do with football in this country. There are a hundred and odd years of history in this country from fans that have lived and loved these clubs. And they need protecting. The fans need protecting. I've benefited from football hugely. I've made money out of football. I invest money into a football club. Now, I'm not against money in football, but the principles and ethos of fair competition and the rights to play the game so that Leicester win the league, they go into the Champions League. Manchester United aren't even in the Champions League. Arsenal aren't even in the Champions League. You watched them earlier on today. They're absolute shambles of a football club at the moment. Tottenham aren't in the Champions League. And they want a God-given right to be in there. They're an absolute joke. And honestly, the time has come now. Independent regulators, stop these clubs having the power base. Enough is enough. And that was one of the most rousing political speeches I've seen for a, for a very long time. Um, almost, I don't know, so maybe there's a chill, but I've almost got goosebumps, which is very strange because I'm really not that passionate about football. But this is very, very outrageous. Ash, that video has been viewed 6.6 .6 million times already. Should the billionaires behind the Super League be afraid of, of Gary Neville and his like? Well, yes and no. Yes, in terms of I've honestly never seen the tide of public opinion being backed up by the bulk of the sports commentariat, being bulked up, being backed up by the entirety of, of you know, the, as 
the associations which govern both national and international football and also being backed up by international governments as well. This is something which simply not really happened um, in the history of football before. But the thing to bear in mind is that there has been decades and decades of drift in precisely this direction. Now, I thought Gary Neville put the point absolutely perfectly. I think that he diagnosed the problem and he talked about what the issue actually is exceptionally well. But there was a layer of irony that he was doing so while holding a Sky Sports microphone to his lips because in so many ways the very foundation of the Premier League and the broadcasting deal which was struck with Rupert Murdoch and Sky is the template which is being built on and followed up on with this European Super League. Initially the Premier League was formed by I think it was five initial breakaway clubs, uh, the big ones, getting together uh, with Greg Dyke, and it was initially supposed to be a uh, deal struck with ITV to try and, um, you know, hoover up lucrative uh, commercial broadcasting uh, contracts and start doling them out. That was the foundation of the Premier League. Now, the FA at that time, this was back in, in the early 90s, were really asleep on the watch. They were so casual about this question of rights and ownership that they were just sort of happy to let, you know, these big clubs hold sway and dictate the terms of this deal. So even though the Premier League, still I think in companies' houses, registered as, as, you know, in some papers as the FA Premier League, the FA has got absolutely nothing to do with it. So the seeds of this crisis where, you know, English football was very, very lax about who owns what. Those were planted many years ago. And the irony is, is that this was supposed to be a huge payday for ITV when the Premier League was uh, supposed to be set up. And then Alan Sugar, who was at the time the owner of Tottenham, privately advised Rupert Murdoch to blow them out of the water with an offer. So uh, Sky beat ITV's offer by, I think it was about £42 million. So I think what this sort of shows you in lots of ways is that Gary Neville, of course, is completely right to take this principled stand against the European Super League. And every word coming out of his mouth is correct. However, there has been so much drift in this direction. In terms of the governing organizations, and particularly in particular UEFA, the trust is so, so low. And even today, UEFA announced that they would make the changes to the Champions League format that the big clubs had all been demanding. So even now, even now, when you've got this scandalous uh, breakaway, which completely spits in the eye of the idea of fair play and competition and spirit of the game, you have UEFA kowtowing to these big money interests. So Gary Neville is completely right, but we also should take a step back and be sceptical of the context that this has emerged in. The issue is because why, why this generation of the Super League is different to anything that's happened before is because it undermines the pyramid model of football. The Premier League, when it started, it didn't undermine the fact that you can get promoted to it and relegated from it. It still fit with the model of, of, of how football works in this country. What it did do, though, was give the clubs more control over TV rights, which is one of the reasons why football became such a big business. And that's how we ended up with billionaire owners. And that's how we ended up with clubs with the power to blow up the whole system. But why it didn't 
create such opposition at the time is because it didn't undermine undermine the fundamental structure of football, even if it led um, to the conditions which would then blow it up. Even though I take all of your points um, about Gary Neville's microphone saying sky on it and how that is somewhat um, incongruous with what he's saying, I do want to have a look at more of what he said, because again, as you say, everything he's saying is absolutely right. And what I want you to pay particular attention to this time is I've said um, before on, on tonight's show that one of the, the key issues here is whether or not the FA will hold firm against the clubs that want to form the Super League and kick them out of the league, or if they will fold and say, actually, to be honest, you've got too much power, we'll have to come to some kind of accommodation. Now, it's people like Gary Neville who are really, really pushing them to play hardball. There does seem to be the suggestion that they would need permission from the Premier League to take part. And without it, it would have to be a breakaway, not just from UEFA competition, but from our domestic competition as well, Gary. So with that in mind, let's be clear about this. What is the motivation? Well, you know what the motivation is? It's greed. Dave, my reaction earlier on wasn't an emotional reaction. Deduct them all points tomorrow, put them at the bottom of the league and take the money off them. Seriously, you have got to stamp on this. This is a... It's criminal. It's a criminal act against football fans in this country. Make no mistake about it. This is the biggest sport in the world. This is the biggest sport in this country. And it's a criminal act against the fans. Simple as that. Deduct points, deduct their money and punish them. Do you think these clubs would have the courage, knowing um, how much widespread Dave, condemnation Dave, they... there is, to go through with it, Gary? Dave, the bottle merchants. You never hear from the owners of these clubs. Absolute bottle merchants. They've got no voice. And then they'll, they'll probably hide in a few weeks and say it was nothing to do with them. They, oh, they were only talking about it. Seriously, in the midst of a pandemic, an economic crisis, football clubs at National League level going bust nearly, furloughing players, clubs on the edge in League One and Two, and these lot are having Zoom calls about breaking away and basically creating more greed. <sighs> Joke. Again, so passionate, so right. And as I say, he's there saying the FA need to go hard. And he's been keeping that up today. I want to show you a tweet from Gary Neville this afternoon. He said, this lot think they can sweep up £300 million more each season than the other teams and then wander back on a Saturday and play with that advantage in the Premier League, deduct points, fine heavily and embargo transfers. I hope they haven't bought some of the other 14 clubs. Now, that's a reference saying they haven't bought off some of the other clubs in the, in the Premier League. So, for example, that's completely hypothetical. Maybe Arsenal say, look, if you if you don't massively oppose this West Ham, we'll help you out with a sort of loan scheme. I've got no idea. Also, very entertaining from Gary Neville was his commentary on a game he is commentating tonight. So that will be Leeds versus Liverpool. But he's tweeted about that twice. So he says... I'm quote tweeting the advert for that game. Leeds players should walk to the side of the pitch and just let them keep scoring. They don't want competition. He goes on, join us if you like for Leeds versus Greeds. Now, I'm hoping this is going to be amped up, basically just casting scorn on the teams who have been so, I suppose, so careless and so selfish um, in this case. If we see the whole of society pouring scorn on them, then you know it is going to be hard. And will we see some of the players speaking up? That's going to be very, very 
crucial. There are some signs. So we haven't had any of the big players from any of the teams who have joined it speak out. They're obviously worried that if they speak out against their paymasters, the people who pay their extortionate wages, um, that might get them in some trouble. But we have seen some top footballers speak out against the Super League. And quite significantly, one of them was one of PSG's top players. So this was a, a club which was touted as going to be part of the Super League. It now seems like they won't. And the fact that their players are publicly speaking out against it makes it seem even more likely they won't. This is Ander Herrera. He tweets, I fell in love with popular football, with the football of the fans, with the dream of seeing the team of my heart compete against the greatest. If this European Super League advances, those dreams are over. The illusions of fans of the teams that are not giants of being able to win on the field competing in the best competitions will end. I love football and I cannot remain silent about this. I believe in an improved Champions League, but not in the rich stealing what the people created, which is nothing other than the most beautiful sport on the planet. What I love there, and especially as someone who, you know, I watch a bit of football, but I can't say I'm passionate about it, is how this is really bringing out some really political and quite moving language from people. You know, he he wants, he doesn't like the rich stealing what the people created. That's a really powerful message to be sending out from a footballer with millions and millions of followers. And it got me asking, could this moment be a really radicalizing one for huge swathes of the country. You know, the reach of football is incomparable. Nothing compares to it. And we are seeing signs on social media and on Sky News of yeah, people coming out with really, really political statements and really, really left-wing statements, actually, real socialist, radical statements. One example of that um, is Lawrence McKenna. He's a football streamer, comments on, on football on, on YouTube, has loads of followers on Twitch. Um, he has a clip which went absolutely viral, over a million views um, after the announcement of the Super League. Let's take a look. The Premier League have stalled and stuttered throughout COVID. Every time that we have asked them to be transparent, they have been oblique. Every time that we've asked them for an answer, they've gone, well, we don't, we don't know if actually this is... And basically, the top six who are make, need to make cash at some point and uh, have got an investment are going, we're fucking sick of people who are incompetent running our shit. If you let us run this, we'll make massive profit. And they've come along, put an offer on the table before the Premier League did. Why is anyone, first of all, surprised? Secondly, why is anyone outraged that in the Premier League, which was based on money, came out of a Thatcher government anyway, and is based on a bullshit idea that you can make as much money as you want. Why is anyone surprised that they're saying this? You invite the billionaires in, I don't and then they, they turn on you. You fucking idiots. I don't think everyone's an idiot. Think no, anyone who thought this wasn't going to come around when the top six is, is owned by people who, are, who have self-interest is deluded. And it's because we've allowed Sky and the fucking Premier League and the FA to lie to us for years and tell us that we're in a good position. We have the best league in the world. It's bullshit. And I'm sick of being patronised as a fan and told by The Times and all these other people owned by fucking Rupert Murdoch that you've got a good deal. You should just stick here. Do you know why he says that? Do you know why Sky say this? Because it benefits them. So we're just, it's either a billionaire that wins with Sky or it's a billionaire that wins on the other side. Now, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that that was Lawrence McKenna and he is going to be here on our channel tomorrow night, Tuesday for Downstream, speaking to Ash Sarkar. If you don't want to miss that, hit subscribe and turn notifications on. We'll see you there. Now, Ash, I want your thoughts on what Lawrence McKenna said there and also, you know, the impact you think this move could have on politics more generally because I'm watching some of this, I'm feeling quite, you know, excited. 
Well, I mean, so one, Lawrence was completely right, especially how he linked this to the origins of the Premier League, which we discussed a bit earlier. But what it also points to is exactly why this is so important outside of the context of football. Because I know that we've got a lot of viewers tonight who are probably not that interested in football, who maybe found some of the aspects of football culture a bit alienating or even a bit kind of hostile. And I understand that. Not everybody has to be into the same kinds of things. But what this whole shameful episode shows is that when it comes to neoliberalism and the financialization of everything, there is no end point. There is no point at which other values or indeed the value of so-called customers and consumers will override the profit motive. It will just keep going on and on. And I think what this has been has been a wake up call for football fans is that for a very long time now, they've not been the customers. They've not been the customers. They've been a product who's been sold to be advertised to. They've had their money extracted from them in terms of ever increasing uh, ticket prices and ever increasing, you know, Sky Sports packages and the like. And meanwhile, the actual experience of going to see the football, um, how, how much has it improved? How much has it, uh, you know, improved in terms of quality and a sense of community and a sense of joy? Um, compared to 30 or 40 years ago, it hasn't, but it has become much more financialized. And in treating, you know, fans like customers, well, it turns out fans aren't even, you know, deigned to be worthy of customers' rights. So I think that what it does is that it shows neoliberalism for the sham of what it is. And um, there's no such thing as consumer rights. There's just consuming. You're, you get what you're given and that's it. And I think what... Whether or not this is to be a politicizing moment, of course, it then depends on, on the kind of organizations um, which are there ready to direct the energy and the anger. But what I hope it can do is show once and for all that the profit motive is not the best way of determining the value of something. It's a phrase which is repeated again and again, which is that, you know, a capitalist sees a forest and determines that it's got the most values when all the trees are cut down. It's something similar with football. There are all these things which are valuable about it, which in some ways require the subordination of the profit motive. So when you look at what goes on in Germany with the 50 plus one model, now with the 50 plus one model, which does mean that football in Germany is less lucrative than in other countries, particularly when you compare, uh, you know, to those top, top teams in La Liga or in the Premier League, you know, they're at a disadvantage. But if that model was to be adopted across the whole of European football, of course, it would be a vast improvement because you look at what else they've been able to do. Because it's majority fan owned, there are a couple of exceptions to that. Um, because you can apply for an exemption to the 50 plus one rule if your investor demonstrates a commitment of 20 years or longer to the club. But for the rest of the clubs, what they've had to do within that context is one, you have, you know, on average, uh, more tickets being sold. So you've got, you know, way more spectators in per football match. Two, you've got a much closer relationship between fans and the football. There's a real sense of, of community spirit and involvement there. And three, what that leads to is a sense of, yeah, 
you've got these incredible teams and it's not an equal playing field at all. There's a reason why, you know, Bayern and Dortmund are so regularly seen in the Champions League, certainly not, you know, as meritocratic as we would like it to be. But there is certainly a sense of, of cultural value, of community value and grassroots connection that in German football they've been able to maintain to a certain degree that we've almost entirely lost in this country. Um, another thing which I think is about the skewing of the value is I don't like the, the idea that by virtue of the financial clout that is able to wield, that Tottenham Hotspur has, an, has inherently more value than, you know, Barnsley FC or, you know, because of the, the lineage and the prestige is, is so much better than, you know, Leeds United. Leeds are probably not going to make it into the Champions League. I mean, those days of, you know, Don Revy uh, and Brian Clough along behind them. But you look at what they're doing in the Premier League, that, you know, fast style open play there's a joy in it and you can see in terms of you know the celebrations in the streets when Leeds achieve promotion you know their value in playing football and their ability to play games against the biggest teams it can't simply be measured in terms of their success or their ability to make it into the Champions League or indeed the revenue that they're able to extract is part of this tapestry which makes this cultural form Great. And when you subordinate all of that to profit, what do you lose? Well, you lose everything. And this is the thing is that it's not just about football. This can happen in any industry, in any sport, in anything that you find valuable and enriching, which isn't literally the job you do. This can happen. And this is why it matters so much. And that's why not only must the European Super League be stopped, but this must be an opportunity, I think, the democratic management and ownership of football clubs to put the control back where it belongs. And that's with the people who made the sport great in the first place. Very inspiring call to arms. This this story, I mean, it's a really bad story. It's a bad move, but it's really bringing out you know, some fire in, in people's belly. I know you've always got fire in your belly, Ash, but I've, I, was, I was moved again by that, just like with Gary Neville. We're going to move on from football to another of the two big stories of the day. Uh, our first non, non-football story. On May the 7th, Wales will elect a new parliament. And on ITV last night, the leaders of the Welsh parties who reached standing to be first minister engaged in their first televised debate. Now, unsurprisingly, it was the response to COVID which dominated the discussion. And wherever you live in the UK, it's really interesting to see how this went down mainly or mainly for me at least when I watched it it's the only opportunity really we have to see how the arguments about Covid pan out when it's a Labour government who are in power so we see here it's it's the Labour party who are making the opposition arguments they're saying the government hasn't done this quite right in Wales Labour are the government so to that end I'm going to show you the three leaders answering a question on what should have been done differently during the pandemic. First is Labour's Mark Drakeford, who has been First Minister for the past three years. Well, had we known back in March 2020 just how quickly coronavirus was going to have spread, I think it's common uh, between all four nations of the United Kingdom that we would have moved more quickly to introduce restrictions before the first wave of coronavirus took a hold. But that is to look back and to think of what we know now, which we didn't know then. Uh, but if I, if one thing stands out in my mind, knowing what we now know, it's that we would have moved more quickly 
to introduce restrictions than we were able to in the state of knowledge at the time. So what I found very interesting there is he's sounding, you know, to be honest, he's sounding a bit more respectful and serious than Boris Johnson. But it's similar talking points which are being emphasised, as in Westminster, in for the governing party, which is to say, or to emphasise the fact that we didn't have all the knowledge at the time. The mistakes we made was because of a lack of information, not because of bad decisions that we made. Obviously, Wales went into a lockdown at the same time as England did in March. So how are the opposition parties talking? Who do they sound most like? Adam Price is the leader of Plaid. He adopts what looked to me like many of the critiques Labour has been offering in Westminster. The Welsh government and the UK government were too slow into lockdown. I remember we, as uh, in Plaid Cymru, calling for the cancellation of the Wales-Scotland game, uh, for example, which the, the Welsh government uh, were resistant to. I, I think as well it was a mistake at, at that time in March uh uh, last year to uh, to move away from the test and trace system. So we we the Welsh government and the UK government abandoned uh, testing and tracing, even though the WHO was 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 saying that that had to be absolutely central. And of course, we learned that lesson uh, later on. And I think critically, we failed to focus on the care sector in in particular in terms of getting adequate PPE, which was a problem in the NHS as well. But also, we didn't test asymptomatic people, uh, even though the science was suggesting that we should. Uh, and as a result of that, we put uh, the care sector, I think, unnecessarily in harm's way. So what Adam Price from Plaid is saying there, you could imagine being said by a Labour politician in Westminster or indeed a Conservative politician in Scotland, where those similar arguments are being made against the SNP. Um, finally, let's go to the Tory candidate in Wales. It's Andrew Davies. And he, to me, sounds a lot like a Westminster Tory backbencher. Back in the summer, I'd like to have seen greater urgency in re reopening the NHS and getting elective surgery going when we had low instances of COVID. So I think there was an opportunity there. Secondly, I think there should have been a greater clarity around a roadmap in particular about getting um, us back on our feet coming out of this current lockdown. And then thirdly, I'd like to have seen greater national agreement where the governments of the UK could have agreed on national messaging so there's greater clarity for people to understand what was expected of them. So there you heard, I mean, again, it sounds like a Tory backbencher. He's basically focused on we could have locked down or unlocked down quicker. To discuss the set of pandemic elections where Labour are in power, I'm joined by Harriet Profero-Sultani, a Welsh activist and friend of the show. What I want to get you to explain to me, first of all, is whether I am correct to introduce this as an election which will mainly be about COVID and mainly um, about Mark Drakeford's record when it comes to the COVID crisis. Very interesting question. So there are kind of two key issues that we're seeing at the moment. There is definitely around the pandemic and Mark Drakeford's response to the pandemic. Like a lot of people didn't know what devolution was until this pandemic. There were people who didn't have an understanding that like the Welsh Parliament could control certain laws and does control certain laws. So there's definitely a spotlight on on Mark Drakeford now. Uh, but the other key issue is also around independence or not. And this is this is a big issue that's come up during the pandemic. Many people have been pushed towards this discussion during the pandemic. So th these are the two key things that we're kind of battling out at the moment. And you see it in some of the leaders' debate where there's a kind of back and forth between uh, Andrew R.T. Davis and uh, Adam Price about whether people are interested in the constitution or whether they're interested in a roadmap to recovery. And I think we'd probably say that both things are, are true at once, to be honest. The other issue in in this election, as you say, is independence. From my perspective, it seems a bit less urgent than it does in Scotland, although I'll ask you about that in a moment. First of all, um, this was Plaid's Adam Price 
making the case for a referendum in last night's debate. But it would be a distraction. Can you deal what, with the what, what, accusation that it would be a distraction? Far from it being a distraction. Look, what, what, of course it, it would be, would be the only. It's the Goodness only way. Sake. Ultimately, there's no solution to Wales's problems in Westminster. The only solution is if we take our future into our own hands. And what I say to people watching tonight, look, we're as yet unconvinced about yeah. the independence message. Okay. Give us a chance. Give us a chance to show you what Wales can right. achieve with but a change like in government. And that will persuade you that we as a nation can be a successful country as an independent nation. Like the driver the keys to your car if you let Plaid come the other independence You can see very heated there. At the same time, I mean, Plaid aren't really in contention for entering um, government in in the Welsh Parliament. This isn't a similar situation to that in Scotland, where actually all that's in debate is how by how much the SNP will win. Is is independence for Wales a significant force in this election, or is it something that we should sort of keep an eye out for for years and even generations to come? Right. <clears throat> I don't think that's true, Michael. I think that, so for example, Labour is not polling well at all in Wales. We're polling probably the worst that we have ever polled in the history of the Welsh Labour Party being formed, uh, which is really worrying, uh, which means we could means we could end up in a coalition with Plaid Cymru. So this is a very, very real possibility. And there are lots of discussions going on at the moment around, you know, what will be offered around the, the independence debate. It seems to be that the consensus is around having the mechanism to be able to have a discussion around independence. So not having a referendum in and of itself, but that um, the mechanism would be uh, in place. So, yeah, at the moment, uh, we are looking to, if we look at the polling from 2019, or how we did in 2019, there are potentially seven seats that we could lose. That's Vale of Hluid, Hluid South, Wrexham, Dellen, Vale of Glamorgan, the Gower, and potentially a Newport seat. If we lose seven seats, that means we're down to about 22 seats, which is extremely bad polling. The other huge worry is that the Tories become the largest party in Wales. The first time in history, the Tories could become the largest. I'm just going to say that again. <laughs> become the largest party in Wales. Blows my mind. Um, but this is where we're at. Labour are going to do so badly um, that we might end up in a coalition and Tories' largest party. So it's not a good situation for us. You're absolutely right. I can't believe I didn't think of that. So in terms of the polling, the latest YouGov has Labour on 32, the Conservatives on 30 and Plaid on 23, which for me made me instantly think, oh, they can't be in contention for government. Obviously, it's proportional representation. And as you say, we could be looking at a Labour-Plaid coalition government. So they are aiming to to enter power, even if not to, if, even if not Adam Price is, is looking to become first Minister. And um, we're going to look at one final clip from that um, leaders debate. This one is less serious, um, more surreal, um, actually. So the debate ended with a question about who the leaders would like to go for a pint with when the lockdown ends. Mark Drakeford went for doctors and nurses so he could thank them for the work they've done during the pandemic. Adam Price went for his mum and dad. Andrew Davis's answer for the Conservatives was a little weirder. Let's take a look. Uh, Andrew R.T. Davis. Well, as it's my birthday recently and my favourite cake is Colin the Caterpillar, which has been in the news <laughs> lately, I'd love to find out who designed the recipe or created the recipe for that, and I'd like to buy him or her a pint. <laughs> <laughs> you've, 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 you've just told me before we showed that clip that the Conservatives could actually come out of this as the largest party. Is there any chance that Andrew Davies will be the First Minister of, of Wales? Like... Uh, <laughs> over my dead body right like this is not gonna happen um this the, the numbers wouldn't potentially start like we'd have to do extremely badly and a coalition discussion fall before 
that was to happen. The really sad thing is, is that people have a perception of the Tories in Wales based on Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson being like, oh, he's a funny lad or bloody Boris, our hero. When actually the leader is Andrew R.T. Davis, who is the biggest numpty you have ever seen in your life. Like he can't even speak. He doesn't have any emotion, Michael. He stands there and he's like, blah, blah, blah. like, what the hell? And like these politicians, like Andrew R.T. Davis, it's almost as if like you've scraped the bottom of the like worst barrel you've got, and you've got someone like him. And sadly, people in Wales have been absolutely duped into by proxy voting for him when you know they're voting for. For Boris and the Tories, yeah, it's really, really depressing. But hopefully, we'll get a coalition and uh, we won't be in this situation. So who knows? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That so Boris Johnson polls above the candidate for for first minister there. Because I was I was wondering if it was maybe the opposite. Because if I was a Tory politician and I was asked who would you go for a drink with after the lockdown, I'd say Boris Johnson because you know he's he's famously someone people would like to go for a drink with, and he would want to associate himself with a Tory leader. I was assuming he didn't want to associate himself with a Tory leader. Is that wrong? Boris Johnson is is quite popular in in Wales. Look, no one knows who Andrew R.T. Davis is. No one knew who Bor um, no one knew who Mark Drakeford was until the pandemic. So when people are voting Tory, they're voting on the perception of Boris. Whether Boris is that popular, I don't know. I'm just speaking to where that vote is going. Harriet Prothero Sultani, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a, a whirlwind tour of, of Welsh politics. I'm sure you know we haven't we haven't done it justice, but we will talk about it more on, on on future shows as well. Harriet, thank you so much. Thank you. Our final story for the evening is an entertaining one. The pandemic has undoubtedly presented Britain's politicians with some serious challenges. But it's also had some less discussed benefits for MPs. Foremost among those is the lockdown has meant our often socially awkward political leaders haven't had to spend much time engaging with the often coarse general public. Well, with lockdown over, that privilege has also gone by the wayside. MPs are once again out and about meeting strangers. And today that included Keir Starmer, who was out campaigning in Bath. He found out quite how unpredictable. The public can be. Do you know what the average age of death with COVID is? According to the Office of National Statistics, it's 82 years and three months. The average age of death normally, 81 years. Do you understand that we have fucked our economy because old people are dying? Do you see this graph? <laughs> the last time we had this much death was 2008. That's the British Medical Journal. No, no, I came here to speak to this man, not your security. You have failed me. We, I've been a Labour voter my entire life. You have failed to be the opposition. You have failed to ask whether oh, lockdown sorry, was functioning. Just behind. Can we just do you understand? Can we, we go on in? Thousands of people have died because you have failed to do your job and ask the real questions. Well, I am telling you now, and I hope this goes out, you have failed this country. You have seriously failed. You, you have allowed our children to wear masks in school when it's never been any evidence for it. Guys, no, that's not it. Can car food, please? Do you want to come on in here, that clip was filmed by Stephen Sumner, who's a local reporter in 
bath. Um, now, what was going on there? I hope you could hear it. Obviously, you know, that wasn't a planned conversation um, to be happening in that situation. Keir Starmer was, I mean, quite notably, actually, he was going around Bath, both to campaign for the mayoralty, the West of England, but also to talk about um, the, the difficulties that hospitality had had. He then speaks to this guy who's very, very annoyed that the lockdowns happened because it cost jobs and he says lives. It's worth pointing out what that guy was saying was complete bullshit. I mean, he, he's basically putting forward this argument that we've heard so often that the lockdowns were, were, were a bad thing. We should have just let people die from COVID because they were old anyway. We know because of studies that the average person who died from COVID in the UK would have lived for another 10 years. So this is a significant amount of time. And obviously that's an average. So there'll be lots of people who passed away who would have lived for another 30 years. So this is not just people who were already on death's door passing away, even if it were, as we said on the show, the fact that people had to die alone and in quite horrific conditions doesn't, it's still something that's really, really bad. Keir Starmer's response. At first I was a bit like, come on, Keir, you can, you can argue with this guy. Why are you walking away? In the end, actually, I think the argument was fairly good saying, you know, my wife works in the NHS. Obviously he loves that line, but he says, I, I won't take lectures on the seriousness of this pandemic because I speak to people who work on the front line. Good argument. What happens next though is much more dramatic. And that's because Keir Starmer and his team try and escape this lockdown skeptic by heading into a pub. But what they don't seem to have realised is that the lockdown skeptic is in fact the pub landlord. Let's take a look. Oh, well, that man is not allowed in my pub. No, Lord. I'm not going to physically hurt him. That man... That's assault. I am not bothering you. I am not bothering him. That man is not allowed in my pub. Get out of my pub. Go on. Get out of my pub. So after that clip went viral, there were discussions about whether the security was a little too tough with the landlord. Some people pointed out the fact that Keir Starmer handed the landlord back his glasses, which said was very gentlemanly. Um, a lot of focus was also on why Keir Starmer's team apparently it seemed hadn't scoped out the pub before going in normally if a leader of a major party is going to visit an establishment you'd assume that they're not going to get shouted at by the landlord because you'd have probably have spoken to the landlord beforehand well that's where the story gets a little bit weirder still because it turned out that Keir Starmer's team had in fact scoped out the pub and Keir Starmer had actually been invited it just so happens he'd been invited by the pub's other landlord so unbeknownst to Keir Starmer's team the landlord they spoke to, who was quite positive about Keir Starmer and quite positive about lockdowns, didn't tell them about his COVID sceptic mate, who also owns the pub. Um, it was Tim, Par Tim Perry, who runs the pub alongside the man who confronted Keir Starmer, who invited the Labour leader to visit. He seemed quite embarrassed by the whole ordeal when he was spoken to by a journalist today. pub is getting blamed for it. Mm. And we're getting death by social media when actually... Rod's the one that held those opinions, not me. Mm. So, there you go. Easier. That's it. But when I tweeted that out today, someone replied, which I thought was very entertaining, to say that those two owners of a pub, it would make a very good sitcom because you can't think of two people who really seem more different. They've got to run a business together. Um, Ash, what did you make of these scenes? Could you empathise with being embarrassed by a mouthy co-worker? <laughs> Oh, not remotely, God. no, not remotely. <laughs> Although I did quite um, like the idea of inviting someone to the Navarra Media Studio and not telling them that, you know, I work with you or Aaron and then them just sort of say, why the hell are you in our office? <laughs> and I just meekly stand back while I've created this sort of, this controversy and I just sort of stay kind of silent. 
You're like, so they've never said anything like this before. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, oh, what do I think about? One, I like the fact that the spirit of Peggy Mitchell lives on. We all love a good get out of my pub. I mean, it's a classic <laughs> line. It deserves to be passed down through the generations. I do think, however, there was a bit much of this being made on social media by people who will do anything they can to find a reason to like Keir Starmer and then people who feel kind of the opposite. So people who will do anything they can to like Keir Starmer, they were like, look at him, cool under pressure forensic. He picked up the glasses with his own hand, his ungloved hand, and handed it to the rogue lunatic. And then on the other, there were people who were like, that man, he's got the right to sue Keir Starmer and his security team because the landlord has the right to eject whoever he wants. It's like, well, yeah, in real life, there's also the case that frontline politicians have police protection and the aggressive behavior of the man would be the overriding concern and it probably wouldn't be seen as an unlawful use of force. What I think about the whole thing is that you can't read too much into politicians' walkabouts and what it is they get back from the public because it can be all manner of things. These things are usually quite stage managed. And when they're not, it's tempting to read a lot into, you know, the person who manages to get through the focus groups and get through all the press officers and say something which is authentic to them and go, that's what the public really think. That's not always the case. But I do think you can tell a lot about a politician about what their reaction is to it. So quite famously, when Gordon Brown was confronted by Gillian Duffy, I think in Rochdale, this was you know about a decade ago now, when she said all of these Eastern European migrants, something of that nature, where are they all flocking from? And Gordon Brown just sort of nodded a bit and didn't really argue back, but didn't really handle it well and then off camera but on a hot mic was caught saying why did you put me with that bigoted woman now that was his undoing because it made him look inauthentic it made him look like he was angry that it hadn't been staged managed enough you know why didn't you you know why did you put me with this person why didn't you handle this for me and it made him look like someone who had a disdain for ordinary people and that's what became defining of that moment i think that while keir starmer was, was left with i think quite thick of it imagery of ducking into the pub and you know hustling out of it i don't think there's anything that's fundamentally embarrassing about it in the same way that hints at a kind of disdain or inauthenticity what i think could be the longer term problem of this is that quite clearly this guy, this pub landlord who's a COVID skeptic is, you know, making, making the most out of his time in the sun. So he's going on talk radio to talk with another lockdown skeptic. And I think maybe what this hints at is a kind of feedback loop and an amplification between kind of radicalizing lockdown skeptic media. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't ask questions about you know, lockdowns, and you shouldn't ask questions about the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Criticism is really good, and it's really healthy, but it needs to be, it needs to be based on facts and data and trustworthy information and, and, and not just any old stuff which is pulled out of your ass. So I do think that this hints at a kind of radicalizing feedback loop. I kind of wonder if, you know, in these kind of small circles, this guy will be a little bit of a core celeb for a bit. But I don't think that it's either as damaging or as validating for Keir Starmer as his supporters or critics would like to make out. Um, if that makes me a centrist now, fucking hell, well, 
it's true what they say about people who age right ash sarko it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening um, thank I you was, for letting I'm, me talk about football so much well i'm so pleased the football story broke on the day that i i have you on tiski anyway but for now you've been watching tiski sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.